As you remain standing, please take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We will begin with verse 26 and read through the end of the chapter. So let's give attention uh, as we read God's Word this morning. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggling with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and, abide, and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Amen. That sends a reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Let's pray before we go to the Lord this morning and hear His Word. Lord, we thank You so much that You have uh, given us Your Word that we could hear what You are, are saying to Your people. Lord, in, in, in the same way that these Hebrew Christians needed this sermon to be preached to them in written form, uh, Lord, so this morning we need to hear Your Word. And yet, God, we know that there are demons even in this room right now seeking to snatch Your Word that we might not hear these things and, and take them to heart. But we know, as Your Word tells us, uh, greater is He who is in us than he who is in the world. And so we look to you, O oh God, and we pray for your Holy Spirit uh, to give us hearts to receive this word. Uh, Lord, that we might not only hear it, uh, cherish it, obey it, uh, but Lord, that you would see fruit that comes of this to the glory of your name. We thank you, O oh Lord, and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, one of the things that that you probably can see pretty easily from the book of Hebrews is, is that the writer repeats himself a lot. You know, he will go over the same topic again and again, and he looks at it, the different nuances, and looks at it from different directions, uh, because he wants us to remember. And, and if you understand, if you've ever worked with anyone 
who's a struggling Christian. And these Hebrew Christians were struggling. As a matter of fact, some were thinking about turning away from the faith. If you've ever walked alongside someone like that, you know that you need to repeat yourself a lot. You need to take them back to God's Word. You need to, to help them to see what, what God has said. And sometimes you have to say the same things over and over and over and over. And so the writer does that. Uh, most likely not just for his uh, first century readers, but for us as well, that we might hear these things. But, but what a comfort it is as we come to Hebrews 10, uh, verse 19, we talked about how this is sort of a, a change in the book. Then now the author is, is getting more, talking more about the application of the book. We have these great truths about how we can come into the presence of God through Jesus Christ, that he is the better sacrifice, he is the better priest, uh, he's the better everything. And, and as he comes and he applies this text to us, what are some of the things that we saw last week, but that he calls us to draw near to God? He wants us to come to him. He tells us to hold fast to our confession. And even telling us to encourage one another to love and good works as we continue to meet together. He said, don't, don't neglect that. You see, there, there's a sense in which as we draw closer to God, we draw closer to one another as well. Because our walk with God truly is a community project. It's not just me and Jesus, and, and Jesus is, is sanctifying me. He uses his bride, he uses his church as well uh, to do that. And uh, it's just, it's just a, a, a glorious, glorious thing. But it, the writer also knows that as wonderful it is to see how God draws us near to him, how God you know, tells us uh, to, to hold fast to our confession and, and these things, He's, he uh, also uh, uses his people to encourage us. And the reason he does that is, is because he knows that there are many forces at work in this world to draw our affections away from God, to draw our love and our faith away from Him. And that's why he says in verses 22 and 23 and 24, look at the text. He says, let us, let us, let us, let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Let us encourage one another to love and good works. We must do these things because Satan, the world, even the flesh within us is seeking to, to draw our hearts away from the Lord. And also, these things that, that he commands us to do in verses 19 through 25 don't not come naturally to us. But if we are to be, um, persevere in the faith, we need this grace in our lives, do we not? And that's why the writer is addressing, uh, that's addressing our text. He's calling us to perseverance of the faith. Now, how does he do this? Well, he does it in a number of ways. And the first thing he tells us as we look at our text in verses 26 through 39 is that uh, he's telling us to persevere through warnings against apostasy. Look at verses 26 through 31. And, and as we do that, we see actually, um, actually even thinking earlier, uh, this is like the fourth time that the author has stopped and given a major warning against apostasy. Uh, chapter 2, he's warning against drifting away by uh, failing to hold fast to the gospel. In chapter 3, he's warning not to turn away from God with an unbelieving heart. In chapter 6, which is a, a big one, uh, we read 
uh, of the dire consequences of apostasy. And then now, in chapter 10, he's, he's warning uh, these Hebrew Christians, having heard and accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, to not turn away from God in rejection of the gospel. Now, it's important that we understand what the writer is talking about and what he's not talking about as we come to verse 26. In verse 26, he speaks to those who go on sinning deliberately. Now, that word deliberately is actually very important for us to understand this text. Uh, deliberately means to do so willfully. It means to do so intentionally. And this is a reference uh, here again to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it would talk about the differences between intentional and unintentional sins. And, um, and he's talking about willful or intentional sins against God. Now, it's interesting, if you look at the Greek, uh, the word uh, deliberately is actually at the beginning of the sentence. And word order is very important in Greek. And if a word is put at the beginning of a sentence, typically it means, hey, people, pay attention to this. This is really important. You need to see this. Now, we don't do that so much in English. We might talk louder, like I just did, for an emphasis. But, you know, in Greek, it's the word order. And, and he's wanting to emphasize the nature of the type of sin that he's talking about. And so this verse does not describe believers who are struggling with sin. Because brothers and sisters, that's every one of us, is it not? We are wrestling in our sin. We may be seeking to mortify, to put to death the sin, but it is a battle. It is a struggle. And that's not what he's talking about. Nor uh, even those who uh, have a besetting sin, which plagues their spiritual life and displeases the Lord. But instead, this sin that he's referring to is to those who reject God's authority to them, uh, to tell them what to do and who flagrantly continue in their own sin. That's what he's talking about. So he's speaking about apostasy. Those who, who turn away from the faith and say, I have no more to do with Jesus Christ. Now, he, he refers to people who have a knowledge of the truth, as you see in our text. And these are individuals who, who know what God has done through Jesus Christ. They're, they're not ignorant. If you ask them about the gospel, they can tell you the gospel. They can share the gospel with other people. However, they deliberately are sinning and willfully turning their backs on all that Christ came to accomplish. And, and he says it at the end of verse 26, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins for these people. Uh, such a person knows of Christ's sacrifice, but they have rejected it. Now, uh, Rick Phillips, he's a, he's a PCA pastor in, in South Carolina. He tells of a situation that, that happened some time ago. But he and his wife had been close to a young Christian lady uh, while she was a student in college where, where Rick taught some classes. And, and after she graduated, the Phillips stayed in touch with her somewhat. And, and after a couple of years, they, they became, it became evident that this woman had fallen into deep sin. I mean, she professed to be a Christian in college, but she had fallen into deep sin. And during a visit that she had at the Phillips house, this young woman admitted her sin with tears. And she came to them and she just, she just said, I am so sorry. And, and they obviously prayed with her, encouraged her. And they took her to church and, and she went back to her hometown, uh, very determined to, to be obedient to Christ. But however, she soon fell in with unbelieving crowd 
And the next time that Pastor Rick talked to her, uh, she informed him that she realized that the, um, Christianity was false. That she no longer believed in Jesus Christ. Um, because she was unable to answer her atheist friends, she began reading atheistic uh, philosophers and, and things like that, and she rejected the faith. Of course, Pastor Rick recounted how distressed that he was as, as he heard this news. And, and even as he did, he, he said he remembers thinking about this text that, that was before him and just the stark possibility that it presented that her lifestyle of deliberate sin suggested a fearful expectation of judgment for this young lady. And, and that just broke his heart as a pastor. Well, he, he tells how some time passed and eventually he was asked by a young man if he would come and officiate his wedding and so he did go to the town where this young man lived and lo and behold it was the same town where this young lady lived and believe it or not she was at the wedding and uh, she saw Pastor Rick and of course was very skittish but they talked a, a little bit and uh, she eventually agreed to take Rick back to the airport so that he could fly home well along the way as they were going to the airport she was telling Pastor Rick about all the the various philosophies and that had led her away from Christ. And Rick said, I, I listened for a while, and then finally he said, I just looked at her and I just at, said, tell me, which came first, your descent into sin or these philosophical convictions? I mean, was it the philosophy that persuaded you of sin or the sin that persuaded you of philosophy? And, and she just broke down and began crying admitted that uh, atheism had gripped her, but only after she had fallen badly into sin and had lived habitually in, in sin for a period of time. But then she went on to say that she was no longer a Christian, but she was an apostate. She was, she was biblically astute enough that, to be familiar with passages like this and, and that she had betrayed the Lord. And if she, even if she wanted to come back to Christ, she could not. To which Rick then as a good pastor would do stop and he said well let me ask you some more questions he said have you renounced Jesus Christ could you do that right now can you say that he is not the Son of God and that he did not die upon the cross for sinners do you repudiate Jesus Christ Rick said if you can do that then I will admit that you are damned well, there's a long pause as the, the young lady thought about that. And uh, Rick uh, went on to share, uh, well, excuse me, there's a long pause, but she finally said, no, I, I cannot repudiate Jesus Christ. And so Rick uh, began to share the gospel with her anew, again. And uh, he said she had backslidden badly, but was not apostate. And, and Rick went on to, to tell the story that how this woman eventually turned from her life of sin, uh, renounced that, repudiated that. She has professed faith in Christ. She is an active member in a Bible-believing church and is growing steadily in the Lord. Now, unfortunately, that's not how all stories end. Unfortunately, I know too many stories that actually end quite the opposite. And, and it's heartbreaking because there are apostates, not real Christians, who fall away, people who profess to be Christians, uh, you know, maybe they've even gone on missions trips. You know, I, I've, I've been aware of people who have gone to other parts of the world to tell people about Jesus Christ, 
the Lord has used their testimony to, to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ, and yet later on then they become apostate and turn away from Christ. People who were never saved. And, and as Hebrews 10.29 makes clear, there's a kind of person who mentally grasps the teaching of the gospel and who knows and understands about Jesus. Yet as verse 29 says, yet who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Now, now notice it in that one verse, that one statement of apostasy, it involves the rejection of three things. First of all, the rejection of the person of Christ as the Son of God. He says, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. But also, uh, a person rejects the saving work of Christ upon the cross. It says, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, and we can talk about this more afterwards if you want, but that word sanctified, some have gotten caught up on that and said, well, you know, because uh, sanctified, if you're sanctified in the Lord Jesus Christ, it means you're dying more and more unto sin and living more and more unto Christ. And so we want to take that meaning and, 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 and put that upon that on this word. And th therefore we want to say, then this person was a Christian who has fallen away from the faith. But this word is used in different ways. And, and sometimes it's actually used to be applied to people who are unbelievers. And uh, if, if you want to turn there, you can. It's a passage you're very familiar with. 1 Corinthians 7, 14. Um, this word could be translated sanctified, but it also could be translated holy as well. And in 1 Corinthians 7, 14, it says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy. There's that word. Use, the same word that's used there, made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. They are set apart by God. Now, that doesn't mean that this unbelieving husband is now a Christian. You know, it just means that he's been set apart because of his relationship with, with his wife. And so, I think we got to be careful to apply our meaning on this word sanctified in our text. But it means that a person who is an apostate it, uh, has rejected the saving work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. But third, we see in this text that the Holy Spirit, uh, they, they reject the Holy Spirit who has brought the gospel near to them. It says, and has outraged the Spirit of God. Has outraged the Spirit of God. Now, this last phrase really relates to what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 32. And Jesus is talking about the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said in Matthew 12, 32, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And so a, a person who is apostate is someone who turns their back upon the Lord Jesus Christ, upon the Holy Spirit and the work that, uh, and, and the work of the gospel. And, and we read in our text, and brothers and sisters hear this, people on the internet that are listening hear this, that such an apostate 
we see is deserving of eternal punishment in hell and, and is in fact consigned to that fate by his or her rejection of the only atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's scary news. As a matter of fact, the author goes on and he said, you know, people who reject Moses' law, the law given in the Old Testament, all it took was two or three witnesses and, and they would die without mercy, as we see in verse 28. And he goes, if that's true, what will become of those who reject the grace of God through Jesus Christ? And we see in verse 27 that he says, only judgment and raging fire will come upon them. And so the author is warning his listeners to hear this and, and to hear what happens if you turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in verses 30 and 31 and he states, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, verses 30, verse 30 is a quote from two passages in Deuteronomy 32 that speak of the need of the judgment of sin. And, 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 and as you look at Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane over the coming wrath of God, it shows you, just His anguish shows you the immensity of God's judgment to come upon Jesus on the cross. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what he would suffer. And you could see that in the garden. But for those who trust in Jesus Christ, this wrath, this judgment, has been placed upon Christ. But for those who reject Christ, as we read earlier, there is no sacrifice for them. There, there is nothing but for them to receive the wrath and the judgment of God. And so in one sense, I guess you could say... People reject Jesus and want nothing to do with them, and God gives them exactly what they want. They say, you don't want my son? You don't want my son? You don't want the payment that he paid to satisfy my wrath? Then all my wrath will be poured out upon you for all eternity. It is a fearful thing to fall under the hands of the living God. But the second way that, that the writer calls his readers to persevere in the faith is to remind them of God's absolute faithfulness in the past. Look at verses 32 through, through 35. You know, he's after warning them of the fearful thing of falling into the hands of God, then he instructs them to recall the former days after you were enlightened. He wanted them to look back at God's faithfulness towards them in the past as they endured trials. Now, notice the kinds of things that God carried these Christians through by the power they received through faith in Him. Now look at verses 32 through 34. Uh, he he uh, helped, He enabled them as they struggled uh, with public reproach and affliction. These men and women were mocked. They were made fun of by the general public. I mean, today, we are beginning to feel a little bit of that as Christians, are we not? You know, if you espouse a Christian view, it's not uncommon for somebody to say, really? That's pretty hateful. Or you're a homophobe, or whatever term they want to use. You know, they just, you know, there's, there's animosity. I can't believe you, you would say that. 
and you would say that. We're beginning to feel that. But it would, it's nothing compared to what these Christians went through. They were literally mocked and made fun of in, in the general public for their faith. But they also had a struggle of guilt by association. You know, there were those in the church who were, were suffering for their faith. And, and, and brothers and sisters, the church stood together. The early church wasn't perfect, believe it or not, but they stood together. And one, one member was scorned. Others didn't shrink back so as to avoid that same ridicule. Instead, they surrounded one another. They encouraged one another. They ministered to one another. Um, he even talks about how they were in prison. Some Christians had to be put in prison. And those who remained free uh, showed sympathy to these. They would minister to them. Their prisons were not like our prisons in America. Our prisons in America, while I hear they're overcrowded, you know, they're more cushy than they were in first century. You were thrown in a hole and you were to care for yourself. And that's why Paul writes to the brothers, hey, bring me that extra coat. It's cold. That's a Rick Frank's translation. But bring me my cloak. It's cold. And bring me the parchments. Bring me the scriptures. And I might read these and be encouraged. It, 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 he needed the fellow Christians to minister to him. And they did that. But we also read in these verses that they struggled the loss of, of material possessions as well. But in all these things, in all these difficulties, uh, we read in verse 32 that what, was, what happened after they faced these hard struggles and trials is they endured. They endured because of the strength that God had given them. God had enabled these believers to stand firm, but not merely to endure these trials. But if you look at verse 34, but they also exhibited joy through it all. Notice it says, On those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plunder of your property. You know, they, they weren't taken back by that. You know, it, we, we see in the text that, that, that they were encouraged. And, and there was a, a joy in the Lord, even though they went through these difficult times. It sort of reminds me of, of Peter and John in Acts chapter 5, when they were arrested by the Sanhedrin and brought before them. And the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, demanded that they'd stop preaching the gospel. And they said, just to make our point, we're going to beat you. And they beat them. And then they released them. And this is what Luke records is Peter and John's response. In Acts 5.41, he says, Then they left the presence of the council, that is the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for the name of Jesus Christ. Because there was such joy, even through the trials, because God sustained them. If we are to have faith in Jesus, it means that we will endure trials, brothers and sisters. And uh, I just think about Luke 9, 23, where Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And, and likewise, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging his readers to persevere in the faith, to remember God's faithfulness to them. So now, as they are struggling in their faith, as they're thinking, maybe Jesus Christ is not the answer. He's saying, don't turn from that. Remember how God sustained you. He will continue to sustain you through the future. Look to Him in faith. Look to Him. Trust Him. And then the third way that the writer calls his readers to persevere in faith is to remind them of God's promises in the future. 
Not just thinking about the past, but thinking about what's coming up. Look at verse uh, 35. It says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Okay? That receiving, that's a, that's a future tense. That's something that's happening in the future. And so the author is exhorting the readers to persevere as, as in the past they stood their ground uh, in the face of suffering through faith. So now they ought to persevere in doing the will of God, uh, looking forward to the future, just as, as Christ did the will of God. Look, look at verses 7, 9, and 10. I'm, I'm not going to read those, but you can see there where it talks about how Christ came to do the will of God. Of God, And in the same way, just as Christ came to do the will of God, there's an exhortation here, brothers and sisters, to us to follow Christ in obediently keeping His commands. And when they persevere in faithfulness to God's will, it says here they will receive what He has promised. You know, because we are citizens of heaven even now, right? Do you think about that? We're aliens in this world. We don't belong here. You know, it's, it's a little bit like uh, if you went to a foreign country and, and you lived there, they would have different food, different customs, different ways of doing things. You may break a law and not even realize it because you're, you're not from there. You, you don't understand that. And, and in some ways, that's sort of like what it's like for the Christian. You know, we, we are citizens of heaven. There, there are different rules, there are different laws, there's different relationships, there's all these things are different, but we're here on this earth and we're aliens, but because we are citizens of heaven even now, we are able to grasp things that are not yet real to our experience. Do you know that? Have you ever thought about that? There are things that we know are real, we've never experienced them, but because of the promises of God, because of the work of the Holy Spirit within us, we know that these things are real because they are promised to those who trust in Jesus Christ. And, and as we, we do, we bring future blessings into our present trouble as power to preserve us. Let me say that again. As we, as we think about those things that are heavenly, we bring future blessings into our present trouble as power to preserve us. And that's what the writer urges the Hebrew Christians to look ahead to their inheritance that is theirs and to live out of the fullness of that inheritance. And, and Paul does the same thing as well in Romans. If you want to turn there, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul, here's a man, if anybody understands suffering and trials, it's Paul. I mean, you turn to the letter, the, the letter to the Corinthians and you can read of all the things that he went through. He was... Beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was starved, he, you know, he just goes on and gives this whole list of, of things that he has encountered. And you think, how can a man take that? And yet then we read in Romans 8.18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. In other words, brothers and sisters, yeah, it looks bad, and you think these things are awful, but when you think about the glory that we will receive as we spend eternity with our God in heaven, worshiping Him, 
what we go through now, it pales in comparison. And then skip down to verse 22 in Romans 8. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. Right? Don't we? Brothers and sisters, do you not groan inwardly? Do you ever feel dissatisfied with your life? Do you ever feel like, yeah, this just... It's just, this isn't it. My job doesn't quite satisfy me. You know, the money that I have in the bank doesn't quite satisfy me. You know, it's, it's just not, yeah, it's not there. It's, 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 we're groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We are waiting for eternal things, brothers and sisters. That's why there's this dissatisfaction in us. He says, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen... It's not hope. If you actually experience the reality of it, it's not a hope. But he goes, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it patiently. And so even though uh, we have not experienced this glory, we wait. We wait. And then Paul says in another place, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, sort of along the same line, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light momentary affliction or trial is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, as we keep our eyes upon those eternal things it enables us to persevere in this life, even when the forces of the devil and the world and even our flesh come against us. But as, as you look at this in, in verse 37, the writer of Hebrews, you see he's especially placing his hope on the return of Christ. He said, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. I would, made a comment yesterday. I was meeting with some brothers in Christ. Uh, and uh, and I made the comment, I said, you know, this world is just crazy. I'm ready to say, Lord, just stop this world and let me get off. And uh, a dear brother looked at me and said, well, that, Pastor Rick, or maybe you should say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And I'm like, I'll, I'll take that rebuke. You are right. You know, that's where our hope is. And we are looking for Christ to come and to return. Um, but Jesus... Uh, we know even though we're waiting for His coming, Jesus is present to us spiritually even now. And, and that's the point uh, that's been made in this letter over and over and over. That when Jesus went to heaven, He did not become inaccessible to us, but even more accessible to us. So while we wait for the King to return from a far country to establish His rule, uh, my family right now is watching through a series on Robin Hood that the BBC did. And you know the story of Robin Hood and how King Richard is overseas and they're waiting for him to return. And in the meantime, uh, John is king and he's ruthless and he's terrible. He is oppressive and the people are living in slavery and they are yearning for the day when King Richard will return and set things right. Brothers and sisters, that's where we're at. We are waiting for a king to return from a far country 
to reestablish his rule. We do so in hope, even now, looking to his promises. And, and that's why, as Christians, uh, we never simply tolerate our circumstances. We are not meant to just get by as Christians, but rather to be animated by a mighty hope. By faith in Christ we live, not shrinking back in the face of opposition or even the temptation to draw away from the Lord. As uh, is, is the writer of Hebrews says in verse 39, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere in their souls. And as we come to the end of this chapter, it, it reminds me of uh, something another PCA pastor said. Uh, his name's James Montgomery Boyce. He's uh, no longer here on this earth. He's now been promoted to glory. But this is what he said, and I think it's an apt uh, closure to this chapter. He said, Victories in such sufferings are eternal in the same way that the victory of our Lord upon the cross is eternal. Victories in, in such sufferings are eternal in the same way that the victory of our Lord upon the cross is eternal. Our sufferings endure for a moment, but they achieve an eternal victory. Right? We suffer here for a little while, but they will achieve an eternal victory. They point to the true and grace, the truth and grace of God forever. And then he went on and he said, I am convinced that in the farthest reaches of heaven, in what we would call a billion years from now, you know, there's no time in heaven, but if you were to clock it by our time, if you want a billion years into heaven, he said, I believe that there will be angels who will look on everyone who has been redeemed by Jesus Christ and, and thrust into spiritual warfare, okay? Because every Christian is thrust into spiritual warfare where we must struggle, where we must fight in the strength of the Lord, right? And he goes, I believe that there will be angels who will look on everyone who's been redeemed and thrust into that spiritual warfare, and they will say, look, there is another of God's saints, one who triumphed over evil by the Lord's power. That's why they're there in heaven. Because they triumphed over evil by the Lord's power. They looked to Him for strength. Revelation 12 11 and 12 describes describes it this way and it says speaking of the saints in glory and it says and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb okay they have conquered the evil one by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death therefore rejoice O heavens and you who dwell in them in achieving those eternal victories, we who love the Lord Jesus Christ will have indeed been more than conquerors as we, as we come to Him. And that's what we read. Is if we don't shrink back we, and live by faith, we will be more than conquerors of Him. I don't know where you're at today, but it may be that you're here and you are wrestling in your faith. You come to church Sunday, every Sunday, faithfully. You're, you're here every time the doors are open. But internally, you are just wrestling. Maybe some of you are even in anguish. And you're just wondering, is this real? And, and you're struggling. And, and, and the book of Hebrews has been challenging us to, to bring us back and to think about what Christ has done. 
and to know that we can trust in Him. And it's as we place our faith in Him, as we heed His warnings, as we look back at God's faithfulness, as we look forward to His promises, that we can persevere to the end. Let us put our trust in Him. Please bow with me, if you will. Jesus, as we come to you in prayer today, we know that you are fully God, but you are also fully man as well. And you understand our weakness. You understand our, our struggle because you are still fully human and fully God. And so we come and we lift up our prayers to you. Lord, there are times when we are just rusting. We, we, we are struggling. We are questioning. We are wondering, Lord, uh, is Christianity right? Is it, is it true? And maybe our questions aren't that deep. Maybe we're just struggling with, with our sin and struggling with life. We pray, oh God, for your encouragement for the saints today. Help us to remember these things. Lord, help us to look back at your faithfulness and the things that you have done and the way that you have sustained us. But also, Lord, help us to look forward to the promises that we have and to understand that the things that we're experiencing is not the end of the chapter. As a matter of fact, it's not even most of the story. Most of the story is yet to come in glory. And uh, we, can, we can bank on that. And Lord, help us to put our faith and our trust in the promises that you give us. Lord, that we would not just be people who get by, but Lord, we would be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. To your glory and your praise. Please help us, O oh Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.